My name is Mark. I'm an alcoholic. I got sober at this club um, in 1993. I haven't had a drink since September 18th. But um, sometime, I think it was like sometime in late August, was the first speaker meeting that I ever went to. And it was a Friday night at 8 o'clock here. I started off at Westlake. Someone had given me a ride. I didn't have a driver's license, and so I couldn't. I, it was hard for me to, to get to um, a lot of meetings friends would drive me and a friend drove me to Westlake and she saw someone that she didn't want to see and she's like let's go to a different club and she drove me over to Bolden and I walked in and heard a speaker and I mean I already knew that I was an alcoholic I I had identified but that night really really touched me because for 50 minutes I heard someone just talk about um their story, and it sounded like mine, and the program, and I had hope. Um, I, can I bet my book, by the way? Um, I'll start off by saying there, there was a time in um, probably about 2000 or 2001, I was, I just gone to Japan. I was going to be there for about six months doing this work assignment. And it felt like it was a really important work assignment. It felt like if I did this right, everything was going to take off. And if I messed it up, which I was certain to do, like my career would be over. And so I was so stressed out. And I didn't know Japanese. <clears throat> I didn't really know what I was doing. And we went out one night with a group of people for dinner um, in this kind of hole-in-the-wall restaurant um, where the food was amazing, but they didn't have air conditioning. It was August. It was hot, humid. And we're all sitting at this counter, and the cooks are doing these amazing things with knives, and they're putting tiny little glasses with ice and a little bit of lemon and some pewter pitchers out in front of all of us. And I was hot. I was stressed. I just wanted some ice water. Um, and so I pour myself some ice water. I'm sitting next to this guy, Joel, who's going to be the translator. He's going to be there with me because I didn't speak Japanese. He's going to be there with me, helping me do what I need to do. And I take this glass of ice water, pour myself some ice water, take a glass, throw it back, and it's in my mouth. And this ice water punches a hole through the roof of my mouth and grabs my brain and just pulls my brain in really, really close and says, Mark, this is bullshit. You don't have to be here. Like, you don't, the, all the other Americans are going to fly back home except for you, you know, and your poor sad sack translator, Joel. And you guys are going to be stuck here trying to figure out what to do. And you don't know what to do. You don't have to know what to do. Walk out. Like, drink me. Walk out. Find a bar and just, like, load up on that American Express for a couple weeks. Then go home and you can tell your wife, you know, when you get home, what you think of, like, why you have to work so hard. You know, like, you've got so many reasons not to sit here and do this stuff. And by the way, Mark, I am not ice water. My name is Saki. And all this is going through my brain. And I didn't know what to do, but I paused for a moment and I prayed. And that doesn't come from me. And um, the reason I'm positive that I had just that amount of, of time to take a different action than I would have chosen to do is because that morning I'd woken up and I had prayed, I had done my meditation, I had, because it's 2001, and I emailed my sponsor, you know? Um, and I had read some of the big book, and so what came to me was even though I desperately wanted to be cool, professional, hip, 
I put my head under the counter and I spit the sake back out into the glass. And I was just hoping, like, hopefully nobody sees me do it. Like, this must be violating so many social <laughs> norms to be doing this. But someone did see me because three inches away from my head, Joel, the sad sack translator, his head is under the counter and he's got a glass up to his mouth and he's spitting his sake out too. And I look at him and I say, Joel, are you an alcoholic? And he says, no, are you a Mormon? And I'm like, no, 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 I'm not. But Joel, you and I, like, we're going to have each other's back for the next six months. We've got it, you know? Um, it is a fact that my name is Mark, that I got sober at this club. And, you know, it's a fact that I'm an alcoholic. Um, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say something that might be controversial. Like, it isn't, those aren't consequential facts. Those aren't hugely important. As long as I don't drink, it doesn't really matter today that I'm an alcoholic. As long as I don't drink, it doesn't really matter today that I'm an alcoholic. You know, I love reading this book and I love looking for themes because I'll you have to trick myself into rereading it over and over and over again. And one time I went through and I looked up every time the big book talks about facts, you know, the things that I should not argue with. The great fact is just this and nothing less, that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and toward God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us which we could never do by ourselves. If you're as seriously alcoholic as we were, we believe there's no middle of the road solution. Those are the important facts, you know, and that's why I want to be here at Bolden, why I want to keep going to AA meetings, why I want to like work with other people those are the central facts of my life today. Um, it wasn't always like that. You know, it, alcohol, the f <laughs> my need to drink alcohol used to be a very central fact in my life. Um, the very first time that I remember drinking to get drunk was the summer after my eighth grade. Um, my sister and a bunch of friends had gone out to a drive-in movie theater and somehow I had been able to go along with them. I was four years younger, five years younger. Um, and they were beautiful and sophisticated and they were drinking like Milwaukee's best beer or something. <laughs> I, like, I wanted to be like them and I wanted them to like me. And I was just some young, dorky little brother. They, they didn't really pay any attention to me. My sister wouldn't let me drink. And when I came home that night, I poured myself a first glass, but started with a glass of Irish whiskey over ice. And I sat in the dark in my living room and I replayed that night. I reimagined that night the way I wanted it to be. In the dark, drinking by myself, and that is pretty much my entire drinking career. You know, there are a lot of different factors that went on with it, but most of my drinking career kind of felt like that. I was completely uncomfortable with how things were, and I wanted it to be different. Um, there was some stuff that happened in, the, in that next year uh, involving drugs. I had an overdose and blah, blah, blah. But there was a time my sophomore year in high school where... Um, 
someone was supposed to be house sitting. Uh, there were seven of us, four guys, three girls, who, who went over to that whoever's house it was that we're supposed to be watching. And we started raiding their, their liquor cabinet and partying. And, and I was positive. I had never gone out on a date. I had never kissed a girl. I was positive this was the night that little Marky was going to become a man. You know, I was, uh, everything was lining up. And at some point, I kind of came to, and I was by myself in the living room. Like I had passed out, and nobody else was there. And it took me a minute thinking, like, did they leave me? And then I realized, ah, no. Like, even my cloudy state, here's the math. Three guys, three girls. Like, they've all, you know, split off, and they're doing whatever they're going to do in the bedrooms. And it's just me and whatever booze is left. So I drank whatever booze was still there and eventually got to uh, Everclear. was the only stuff that was left. And I was drinking Everclear. And I had no idea how to drink, especially not in quantity. Um, and that night, my friends took me back to my house, rang the doorbell, and when my mom came and opened the door, I couldn't even stand up, I just kind of crashed. And she was an RN, she figured out what was going on, and she got me to the hospital. Um, I had alcohol poisoning, which turned into jaundice, and um, because my mom, <laughs> she's not just an RN, she was a psychiatric nurse, um, she looks for things that are indications of crazy. And I was a different kind of crazy than she assumed. She thought that this must be like suicidal call for help, um, and so I, I wound up in um, the psych ward after uh, the jaundice wore off. Um, and uh, I thought to myself, you know, I had read a little bit of Sylvia Plath. I, I kind of imagined that a psychiatric ward would be some beautiful house out in the countryside. And maybe I'd have like a collie at my feet. And I'd learn to paint watercolor or something. Maybe I'd start to <laughs> write poetry. If you have not been to a psychiatric ward, that is not at all what it's like. The downside, like in my, I thought at least I could get some, some relief, some downtime. The downside is that you are surrounded by crazy people. You know, I mean, I got good at ping pong, um, but within about a week, I was just begging my mom, like, you've got to get me out. Like, I do not belong here. Um, and my mom got me out. It, it, didn't, it didn't do anything for me. Whatever was going on in my brain was not actually addressed. If there was someone from like some kind of H&I committee in Ames, Iowa, who came to the sixth floor of Mary Greeley Hospital that week, I don't know, I don't remember. But that is one of the reasons why today it's one of my favorite forms of service work is because someone, is showing up in that psychiatric ward and they don't know why they're there you know maybe they belong maybe they don't belong but someone is going to be in shoal creek or saint david's or somewhere and they could use the message that only we can bring um there was a bunch of stuff that happened when i was in high school involving crashing cars i won't go into all the details but car crashes are part of my story um when i went to college, uh, Labor Day turned into a problem for me. The very, very first Labor Day, my freshman year in college, <clears throat> I wound up blacking out in the lobby of Burge Hall at the University of Iowa, which had just been ranked the number one party dorm in America by Playboy magazine. Um, and the police came and 
picked me up and took me downtown. My friend Mike called, heard that I had gotten picked up. Um, he called to ask, hey, do you have Mark Cranan there? And um, they had they had me, but they said, we've got a guy here who says he's the Pope, um, which was my nickname. And when they're asking me for ID, I pull out this letter that was addressed to Pope um, by a woman on one of the, the neighboring floors. Um, it probably said something like, Pope, you're a really nice guy. I don't like you this way, you know? But I had this letter and I'm pulling the letter out and I'm like trying to show it to the police. And so the police tell Mike, have we got this guy who says he's the Pope? And Mike's like, that's my boy, you know? Can I, <laughs> you release him? So I remember the policeman taking me back to Burge Hall to release me to Mike's recognizance. And just this look of, disbelief on his face like man you've got everything ahead of you I was 17 at the time just about to start college it's like what I wouldn't give to have what your life looks like what are you doing and I didn't have an answer for it like I'm in college I'm gonna be drinking man like that this is just what happens sophomore year Labor Day weekend um sophomore year oh sophomore year was the year that Iowa increased the drinking age to 21. Um, and so the cops were out everywhere. I had just, I, I was 18, I was about to turn 19. And some police came into the bar where my friends and I were drinking and uh, I loudly questioned their proclivity for sexual relations with farm animals. And <laughs> the only two people at the table who were underage were me and my date. So both of us wound up going to, to jail that <laughs> weekend. Um, and like junior year, senior year, every single time I'm getting arrested on Labor Day weekend. Labor Day weekend is a horrible time, especially Friday night, to get arrested, because you're not gonna see the judge until Tuesday. Like you're pretty much stuck. If you don't have bail money, you're stuck. So let me tell you for a second about this guy, Tom Fleener. Tom Fleener was my best friend when I was in grade school. And Tom Fleener, um, his mom married Rich. So his stepdad built this beautiful house. They had this, kitchen with an island and nobody that I knew had an island in the kitchen at that point and he got a dog like Tom's step rich stepdad bought him a dog and we would be hanging out listening to Abba up in his room the dog would be like hanging out with us and Tom's mom would open up a can of Alpo dog food and the dog would hear it and prick up its ears and go running down the hallway, down the stairs, through the living room, through the dining room. This dog was stupid as fuck. And it would go running, boom, right into the like corner of this kitchen island. Every single day I'm hanging out there, this dog did this. So after like about six months, the dog started to figure out what was going on. And when Mrs. Fleener would start opening up the Alpo, the dog would prick up its ears or start running down the hallway, run down the stairs, run through the living room, run through the dining room, and it would start to whimper when it was in the dining room because it knew that in about five seconds, it would bang its head. It didn't change its course. It didn't slow down. It didn't do anything different except cry because it knew the pain that it was about to experience. So my fifth year in college, just before Labor Day, I go to an ATM and I take $500 out of my checking account and I put it in my shoe because I know I'm gonna get arrested I know I'm going to get arrested, but this weekend, God damn it, I am not going to spend four nights in jail until the judge will see me. Um, and that is, that is the insanity that goes through my brain. I don't have any other way of doing it. One other thing that happened to me in college, um, I 
tended to suffer from depression. It probably wasn't a surprise to my mom when she saw me get totally wasted my sophomore year in college that she thought we could probably use some psychiatric help. Um, and at one point in college, I went to see a psychiatrist and he was completely unhelpful. Um, and he, uh, he prescribed antidepressants for me and was haranguing me. Mark, you cannot be on alcohol or drugs if you're mm -hmm. on these. Like, it's not going to work. It's going to mess up with your health. You can't. I don't, I don't have any <laughs> not to drink. Like, I, I don't have that. I don't have that skill set. I don't have those tools. I want you all to know how important it is to have eventually found Alcoholics Anonymous because the one thing that came to 20-year-old Mark Kernan's brain about how to fulfill the psychiatrist's admonition mm -hmm. is magic. I decided my roommates and I are throwing parties every weekend, and if I'm not supposed to drink, I will do magic. And so I bought a magic kit, and every time we threw a party, I would be, like, trying to do magic for the so that I would have something to do besides drink. That is the very, very best that this very intelligent brain could come up with to not drink. I don't, and I naturally, like, kept drinking anyway, and so um, had to get off of the uh, antidepressants. Um, I graduated from college and I got, a, I got a lame job, you know, it was an entry-level advertising agency job. They gave me a, they gave me a car. Um, I don't know if I told you how many accidents I was in before I went to college, but it was 12 single vehicle accidents before I started college. And I had this company car and the third time that I crashed, also like single vehicle accidents, the third time that I crashed, I got fired. And I argued with my boss, like nobody, nobody asked me what kind of a driver I am for this job. Like at, my job qualifications have nothing to do with my driving. And my boss just looked at me like I'm crazy and says, Mark, like you cannot keep crashing company cars and expect employment. That, that is not how it works. I was Curious. Um, I had a second job, which was a bar manager in a hotel, and I got fired from that about a month later for stealing booze. Um, and from that point until, um, seriously, 1997, so basically 90 until 97, um, I worked, I worked low-level food service jobs um, because I didn't have any other skills that I could do. Um, a year and a half later, like I'm living in Des Moines, Iowa. I'm living with my sister um, because I don't make enough money to be able to drink and afford rent. So I'm living with my sister because I'd rather drink than afford rent. Um, and her, her husband had just got in company car. So he gave me his old car. And I'm sitting at a bar one day. I don't have to work, turns out. I thought I had to work, and I don't. So I'm day drinking. And um, I leave at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and I'm driving back to my sister's house. And someone cut me off, and I got mad, so I sped up and drove past them and cut them off. And I didn't have time to stop before a red light. And I finally had a two-car accident, and I hit another car, T-boned them, and um, 
the driver broke his leg. It was a compound fracture, the bones sticking out of his flesh. I'm throwing up looking at this. I'm just sick. The police happened to know when they showed up, happened to know my sister and my brother-in-law, because both of them were active in Republican politics in Polk County, Iowa. And so the police were very <laughs> gracious with me and very deferential. Um, and I thought to myself, awesome. I didn't know the word privilege at the time, but awesome. I could like go home and like everything is great. I've totaled my brother-in-law's car, but you know, I, I'm not going to jail. And they still um, had filed charges against me for um, drunk driving and vehicular injury. Um, my friends had moved to Austin, Texas, and I decided at that time, there was a good thing for me to move to Austin. Um, the big book talks about geographical cures. Um, uh, to me, it just seemed like a really good idea. Uh, turns out that the state of Iowa has another term for that move, and that is called felonious interstate flight to avoid prosecution. Um, I moved down to Austin, Texas, uh, and thought, clean slate. I can't get a driver's license. Uh -huh. That's okay. You know, I've got a bike, and there's... Uh, there's um, the bus system, I'll get by. And I knew I couldn't drink anymore. I knew it. I, by, at that point, I knew I was an alcoholic. I don't think that I had gotten to the point where I could say my life was unmanageable. Um, I would still sometimes binge drink, and I was doing a lot of drugs. Um, and I was working at Kirby Lane Cafe, at Kirby Lane Cafe. You could smoke weed all shift long and you know most of the time people were okay if you get their strawberry and blueberry pancakes you know mixed up like they'll still tip you um people would come into kirby lane cafe after bolden eight o'clock meetings westlake eight o'clock meetings western trails meeting and so i started to know people from aa who were regulars at the restaurant there were some people who worked with me who were in aa um in fact carla and terry were two waitresses and they started um, it started inviting me to do stuff in the afternoon, like go bowling or go see a movie or something. And then when we're done with that, hey, do you want to go get dinner? Yeah, I'd love to. And then every single time they would say, oh, it's 5.30. Um, you know, there's this thing that we usually do at 5.30. Why don't you just come with us and then we'll get dinner afterwards. And so um, I started going to Westlake meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous with Carla and Terry. I was high as a kite when I first walked in, but I recognized a lot of people. The very first one freaked me out. People would like hold hands and pray. That was weird. And when I walked out of the first meeting, I asked Carla and Terry, I'm like, wow, you know, like what happens if you're too smart to believe in God? Like I didn't <laughs> use those words, but that was basically what I was saying. And Carla, bless her heart, Carla looks at me and she says, well, most of the people who come into AA feel like that, you know? Yeah, they are too smart to believe in God and they keep drinking until, you know, they're willing to be a little dumber. And until this program, will, they're willing to try it, you know? They keep doing it until they're ready. Now, there also was um, a woman who was, a young woman who was a regular at Kirby who had been sober about three or four years, and I had a giant crush on her. Um, and uh, her birthday was coming up. And my friend Basil had lent me his car when he went to New York City. 
Um, and so I'd started going out on a few dates with this girl and I was like, I told her, oh, I don't drink, I don't drink. I knew she was sober. I didn't tell her like I'm doing cocaine and heroin, um, but <laughs> I don't drink. Um, but we were supposed to hang out on her birthday uh, and I hadn't heard from her. And there are no cell phones, it's 1993. No cell phones. And so I'm like, ah, she's blowing me off. And so I fixed, I got loaded. Um, and then she called and she's like, hey, here's my address, come pick me up. And I was so messed up and I was driving Basil's car and I picked up this sober young woman on her birthday. I ruined her birthday. When I came to the next morning, I felt so much shame. There was August 18th into August 19th. So for the next five days, I kicked um, in my house. I didn't, I called in sick to work. I didn't know about detox or treatments. I didn't, I didn't know that stuff was there. Um, I felt so bad. I never want to go through that again. Um, but I started going to AA sober, uh, but I wasn't yet working the steps. And um, for me, my experience from those days is I can usually get by about with two weeks max of hanging out with you guys, maybe getting coffee afterwards, going to meetings, and I'm going to find myself at a party wasted. And that happened to me a couple of times. September 17th, 1993 was the last time and it happened. September 18th, 1993, I walked in that door, one o'clock on a Sunday afternoon to pick up another desire chip. And after I did it, Jim Clark came up to me and Jim said, hey, Mark, how many more of these do you want? I said, I don't want any more, Jim. Like, I'm done. I don't want any more. It's like, good. And it's time to start doing what we do and not just listening to people talk about it. And so I got a sponsor and I started working the steps. Um, uh, I did steps one, two, and three pretty much right away. I did step three in Zilker Park. I'll never forget like the experience of doing that prayer with Motorcycle Ben, my sponsor, who also happened to be Carla's husband, you know, like it's a little tight group at Kirby Lane AA. Um, <laughs> but uh, I um, still had a crush on the girl that, that I... Um, that I had ruined her birthday. Um, and I was, one time I was hanging out at the Black Hat on 6th Street, and I was just feeling, I'm sober, you know, but I was feeling sorry for myself and seeing a band, and everybody else can drink and, you know, still smoke weed, and I can't do any of that stuff. And I'm going back to my house, and I'm going past Kirby Lane on South Lamar, and I see this girl in the parking lot talking to somebody, and I get an idea. So I walk back over to Kirby, and I, I tell her, Man, I just had such a rough night, and I can't drink anymore, and I'm so sad. And will you come over to my house and read the big book with me? <laughs> she probably thought to herself, like, the same thing that all of you guys are thinking, dude, that's so pathetic. She said, yeah, Mark, I will. And she came over, and that night she taught me how to read the big book like a textbook. We broke out highlighters, and she had me, like, highlighting the pieces that really spoke to me. She had me writing in the margins. <clears throat> I'm sure that I thought to myself, you know, that maybe I am going to get lucky with her tonight, and it didn't happen. But a week later, a week later, I was looking through the book, and one of the, one of the stories we had read together um, was... Uh, um, now I'm not going to be able to remember what the name of it is, but there, there was a story about a woman um, There's in the back of the third edition. And I went back to flip through it to remind myself what it was that I'd been highlighting. 
and I found something that she had written in the margins of my textbook. She'd written, I love you more than you will ever know. And I thought to myself, oh, all right, you know, you got a chance. It took me probably a year before I realized exactly what she meant. She loved me enough to teach me how to learn something that would save my life. And this book is totally beautiful. Like, just someone just gave this to me for my birthday this year. So, like, this one is, like, unmarred by writing. But if you see my fourth edition, um, it is falling apart and highlighted all over. Like, I, I have done that over and over and over again. This is my fourth big book. Um, probably about six months from now, you know, it will look like all of the others, just written through and through. Because this book saves my life. Um, I, most of my sobriety is not what I would recommend that anybody do. Like a lot of my, lots of times you will hear somebody talk in a meeting and it might be useful because they've got the program absolutely right. A lot of the time you might hear someone talk in a meeting and it's useful because don't do what that person did. Um, and so at about two months of sobriety, I started dating a co-worker of mine at the restaurant. You know, everybody says, wait a year before you get in a relationship. And maybe that didn't really matter to me because I had everything done. And so instead of continuing to work through further steps, um, I started dating someone. And I kind of stalled out at step three. I would do steps one, two, and three regularly. I was going to meetings. I was talking to my sponsor. But I didn't do step four until that relationship ended. And um, I got really, really mad. And my sponsor said, you know what? There's a wonderful thing to do in the big book when you've got resentments, and that's the inventory. And so I started doing my inventory. I switched sponsors to Sandy. Um, Sandy was Terry's husband, <laughs> Carla and Terry together. Um, and Sandy walked me through step four, um, and he was a roadie for, uh, for some bands. Don't you remember Sandy? Biker Sandy. Yeah, Biker Sandy. Both of my first two sponsors were bikers. Um, he was a roadie for, for, some, for some bands, and he was on tour that summer. So when it came time to do step five, Sandy recommended, why don't you do it with, with Terry? You know, Terry knows you. Terry loves you. Like, do you feel comfortable with it? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And so I met up with Terry, and I did my fifth step with her, and she helped me see causes and conditions like this is the beautiful part of step five is to see like how all of these things that i didn't think were related to one another actually are completely tied together with the same causes and conditions it was great a lot of it was around relationships and you know my messed up attitudes and actions with romantic partners um, including this relationship that i had just been in i had no business being in a romantic relationship because i hadn't yet had that revolutionary change in my thought and my actions um we get done with step five and what does the big book tell us to do with like step six and seven what do we do we go home for like an hour and, you know, sand and foundation and blah, 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 right? Um, I was going to do it. But first what I did was I went to Black Cat because there was another girl who was in a band and she'd invited me to go see her. And I 
I just want to see her before I do step six or seven. Like, she's playing, you know, and she's, she's going to be wearing this dress that we had picked out at a thrift store together. Like, she's going to be singing for me. And so I go to the Black Cat and I see her play. And I just feel like I'm on top of the... I've just done step five. This beautiful rock star is going to go home with me. To, and she doesn't go home with me tonight. Like, we get done... She gets done with the show and she comes up to talk to me. And... I'm feeling so on top of the world. And she's like, oh, hold that thought. I got to go talk to someone. And she goes off and talks to someone else who's in the industry. And I, like, I'm left there for like 10 or 15 minutes. I'm just like, screw this stuff. And I went home. And as I was going home, I realized I have just repeated some of the causes conditions that had been in my resentments. Folks, just like alcohol, I am powerless over my defects of character. My only chance is to turn them over to God doing steps six and seven. Steps eight and nine were absolutely amazing for me, being able to make amends. Um, I'll tell you, one of the hardest amends, and this happened years after getting sober, um, is there was a restaurant that I worked at in Des Moines called Drake Diner. And the folks who worked at Drake Diner, who ran the Drake Diner, they were really good friends of mine. I would go see them every time I went up to Iowa. My sister and her family would go in with me. They would give me hugs. There had been some tragedy that had been associated. A close friend of mine had gotten shot at the restaurant right after I moved down to Austin. And, you know, we had this kind of trauma bond. Um, I had to go back to that restaurant and tell Jody, um, one of the managers of the restaurant who is still there like 10, 12 years later that I had been stealing from the restaurant the entire time that I was there. I told her I'm an alcoholic and I can't, I can't do what I need to do unless I make this right. Um, and I paid off the amount that I'd stolen from that restaurant. And the look in her face was not the look that I ever wanted to see. She loved me when I walked into the restaurant. And when I told her this, she accepted my amends. She accepted the money. She never wanted to see me again. And that's okay. You know, sometimes it works out in ways where we feel just like totally loved and everything's good. It doesn't matter whether it's that way or if it's any other way. It is on me to make things right with my amends. Um, there's another there's another situation which I need to share too. Um, that woman who I had such a crush on when I first came in, um, she didn't stay sober forever. Um, and I had moved off to Puerto Rico and come back to Austin. And one afternoon I'm here, it was like a 5.30 meeting. And this woman comes in with a famous guitarist. She was a, a bartender at the Saxon Pub. And this famous guitarist had come in and played the night before. And she had taken him home, <laughs> like a, a good uh, drunken bartender. Um, and when he came to the next morning, he's like, man, I just can't keep drinking anymore. I don't know what to do. And she's like... I think I know, I think I know a place that'll help. She wasn't sober anymore, but she brought him to Boulder at 5.30 and she walked in and a guitarist did not stay sober. Um, but this woman saw me and it was just like no time had passed. We hadn't talked in a few years, gave each other giant hugs and she decided, you know, I need to get back here. She really, really missed it. And um, we started going to meetings together. Um, I was living with a woman I would later marry, um, but 
uh, I started going to meetings with her and she asked me to be her sponsor. And um, I was like, get out. I've got a woman sponsor. I'll tell that story in just a minute. I've got a woman sponsor. Like, there's no reason I can't sponsor. Like, you and I are good buddies. Like, why not? Let's 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 do this. I told Rosie my sponsor that, and Rosie's like, no, 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 no. Like, it, let's get her a woman sponsor. Give her my number. It'll be fine. I'm like, okay, I'll just be a temporary sponsor. And Rosie looks at me and laughs. She's like, get her a woman sponsor. Um, but this, this young woman and I started going to meetings, and. Um, I was working the steps with her, and she did steps one, two, and three, and she was working on step four. Um, and Rosie asked me one time, she's like, hey, how is she, how is she doing? How's that, how's that girl doing? Like, is she still sober? And I'm like, yeah, like, we're going to meetings. She's working on step four. She's like, that's great. Who's her sponsor? And I'm like, well, well, I'm, I'm still kind of sponsoring her. And Rosie says, Mark, you cannot do that. Like, you slept with her. If she, try, when it comes time for her to tell her fifth step, you can't hear that fifth step. You know, if you were if you were a psychologist or a therapist, you would get like you would lose your certification for that. I'm like, oh, damn it, you're right. Then it made sense. And I went over and I told her that and you know, I'm sorry. And she took it well. She's like, that's fine. Um, I never saw her in an AA meeting again. And uh, I'm not sure what's going on with her, but in um, New Year's Eve. 1999 into 2000, I guess New Year's Day, she was in the paper because she had married another famous guitarist um, and she was out looking for him um, because he hadn't come home on New Year's Eve and she found him dead of a heroin overdose in a hotel in Georgetown. Um, so I can kind of imagine what her life might be like. Um, I'm not responsible for whether someone else is coming into the program or not. But I know today, because I did inventory on this, that when this woman asked me to be her sponsor, even though I'm in a romantic relationship with someone I love, I felt some amount of ego gratification. Oh, she still likes me, you know? And she thinks that I've got something that's worth having. It just feels good, you know? And that is exactly the wrong reason for me to sponsor anybody. Like, when I sponsor someone, the only thing that should matter is that I have done the steps and that I can help guide them through the steps. There's no other qualification that makes me an okay sponsor, and there's no other reason that I should have. Um, Rosie, Rosie. Um, when I came back from Puerto Rico, when I was in Puerto Rico, I had the best sponsor in the universe. His name was Artie. He was amazing. And I came back to Austin, and I kept looking for, for a sponsor as good as Artie. <clears throat> and I spent a year not finding one. Um, and one of my friends... Uh, Charlie, he and I were going to Northland, the step discussion meeting, Sunday night at eight o'clock, and we've been doing it for weeks. And as we were about to go into that meeting, he asked me, hey, Mark, like, have you found a sponsor? And I said, no, I'm still looking. And Charlie says, fire that search committee, man. Okay. Your search committee sucks. It's taking you too long. Like, why don't you just ask God? And that made a lot of sense. So before we walked in, I, I prayed with Charlie, and I asked, God, show me someone who can help like walk me through the steps, you can be a sponsor. And we walked in and I've known Rosie since the day I got sober. Rosie used to be a regular here too. Um, and Rosie uh, shared that night at, at Northland. And so I, whatever she said about sponsorship just touched my, touched my heart. And I went up to her afterwards and I'm like, Rosie, I, I prayed to hear a sponsor and, and, um, or find a sponsor. And what you said really touched me, would you be my sponsor? And Rosie goes, absolutely, yeah, I'll do it. 
10 years later, I was picking up a, a birthday chip and Rosie was giving it to me at Western Trails and Rosie said, you know, I know, she says, that women aren't supposed to sponsor men and men aren't supposed to sponsor women. But when Mark asked me to sponsor him, I knew it was okay because he was gay. And then I heard, and then I heard his first inventory. He's <laughs> just like, I have made a serious mistake. Um, but by then, you know, we've been working together for a while, and it was okay. Um, I, I do want to share with you, like, part of why this stuff is just so amazing. The woman that I was engaged to marry, um, we we didn't want to have kids, um, and one day. Uh, I got a pregnancy test for her from HEB because she'd been sending me off for country time pink lemonade like every night at midnight for like three nights in a row. And I'm like, I'll get it, but you're taking a pregnancy test. And so the next morning she took the pregnancy test and and she was pregnant. Um, And she started crying and I started freaking out and I called Rosie and Rosie did what Rosie does. Rosie says, all right, come on over to my house. I'm over here, I'll bring you some coffee, bring a pen and paper. And I went over to her house and I wrote an inventory. I wrote everything down and finally got to the point where I'm writing about what my fears were, why I could never be a dad. Because my dad hadn't been there for me. It's like, ooh, resentments that have not come up. Well, I start writing that shit down and I start writing it down. And Rosie had me go a little bit further. She's like, write down a time when your dad was there. I'm like, Rosie, like there isn't one. She's like, that's cool. Sit there until one comes to you. And I remember this story eventually, like an hour later, about when I was in Boy Scouts and I had asked my dad to help me with an astronomy merit badge. And he was a physicist. And he, his way of helping me was he and I built a telescope for like six months. And that was how my dad did show up. And there were different ways that I expected my dad to show up. And he didn't show up the ways I expected him to, but he was there. One of the things that Rosie taught me that morning is that I am surrounded in AA meetings by moms and dads who absolutely know how to parent. I remember when I brought, spoiler alert, I have a daughter. You know, when I would bring my daughter Soren into this meeting when she was like six months old and Donna asked if any of you know Donna. Donna was cleaning this glove for years and Donna was bringing in her son. I think his name is Luke, you know, and Donna and I figured out together in these rooms how to be parents um rosie had me call jill um who was my fiance and jill came over and rosie's like all right mark's done his work like what do you want to do jill and jill's just crying she's like i want to have a baby <laughs> and rosie's like all right what else and jill said i want to get married and rosie's like all right well what do we want to do and jill's like i want to get married next week and rosie pulled like a wedding together with us and um when it came time to have a baby rosie was there and rosie is my daughter's godmother I named, we named our daughter Soren Rose, um, partly after Rosie, my sponsor. Um, And that marriage didn't last forever. I got divorced in 2010. And when the marriage disintegrated, I did exactly the same thing that I did that morning in 1997 when I didn't know how to be a dad. I sat down and I wrote down all my fears and all my resentments and Rosie's like, Bro, I think you got some sex inventory you got to write about too. (laughs) Don't forget that part. Um, And this stuff works every single time in every situation that comes up. There's one other thing I want to say. 
I've been able to build a wonderful career that does not involve Kirby Lane Cafe um, <laughs> since I've been sober for a few years. And in 2008, uh, I was in Singapore. I was living in Singapore for about six months. And while I was over there, um, this woman would come into the Singapore English language AA meetings from Malaysia, and she was getting everybody fired up. There's going to be a Thai roundup, and it's going to be in three months, and Clancy is going to be speaking the keynote, and we've got to get everybody we know to Thailand, to Phuket for this Thai roundup. And uh, so I started emailing all my buddies back and all, you got, we got to go to Thailand, and, we're, and none of my friends were going to go to Thailand for a Thai roundup. But I was pumped up to do it, but the economy kind of sank, and um, my employer said, hey, Mark, you're really expensive. Why don't you do your work back in Austin again, go home? And I was all bummed. I'm like, oh, shoot, you know, I'm not going to be able to do this Thai roundup. <clears throat> so I came back to Austin in, uh, I guess it was like February of 2009. And in June of 2009, Austin was hosting the Texas State Convention. And the keynote speaker at the Texas State Convention was Clancy. And so after he tells his story, I go up to him um, in the reception line and I tell him, man, I heard that this was going to be in Thailand, the Thai roundup, it was going to be my last chance to see you. We were all pumped to do it and I, I might never see you again. And I wound up not being able to stay and so I couldn't go, but here you are instead. And Clancy looks at me and he goes, did you talk to anybody who was there? And I said, uh, no. And he goes, Mark, let me tell you, at that Thai roundup, I had the most amazing breakthrough that I shared with everybody who was at the Roundup. I learned something about my sobriety and how to work the program that I never known. Do you wanna know what it was, Mark? And I said, yeah, yeah. And he holds me by the hand and he pulls me in real close and he goes, then you should have fucking been there. And he shows me off to the side. Pure Clancy move, right? And, you know, I mean, that's Clancy, and it's kind of funny, but there's something to be told, or something to be believed in from that, that if I really want what can come from this program, i got to be there. Thank you very much for helping me stay sober. Thank you.